Need one more reason why your Safeway store is just better? How about free Cuisinart Classic Cutlery or Elite Flatware? That's right. For every $10 you spend, earn a free stamp saver you can redeem for Cuisinart items. Once you've collected between 30 and 60 stamps, you could start shopping for a variety of Cuisinart Cutlery or Flatware available at the in-store display. Present your items and stamp saver at checkout. It's simple. Spend $10, get your free stamp saver. Start collecting. Safeway, it's just better. You're listening to Holistic Living, brought to you by East West Healing and Performance. And now, here are your hosts, Josh and Jeannie Rubin.
um, to compensate him um, for his time. That's all we really ask, because I know a lot of people are emailing him. And if it wasn't for his research, you wouldn't have this information. So you're just helping to facilitate his research. So that's it. Let's get Jeannie and Ray on the line, because I'm sure you're sick of hearing me talk. Hold on one second. Actually, you know what, before I get him on, I just want to introduce him because it's much easier without him on here. Um, of course, I've introduced him many, many times, who he is, what he does. If you want to learn more about him, all I can say is go to his website, raypeat.com, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. He's got tons of articles on his website. He's got books, a newsletter, and all I can say is his articles are very in-depth and they're free. And what else could you ask for? And you can learn a ton from them. Also check out his books, and you can check out some of the other people that he's referenced in the past, like Broda Barnes, um, and uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her, her name right, Mary Shimone, there's many other people. So look those people up as well, because they kind of align with uh, Ray Pete's philosophy, like uh, Dr. Shanklin and um, um, Dr. Brewer, Tom Brewer, and people like that. Um, so if you want to learn more about Ray when he comes from, definitely check out his website, The Teacher educator, researcher, and today he is going to school us on serotonin and endotoxins. Let me get him on. Hello. You guys there? Yeah, we're here. All righty. How you doing, Ray? Very good. Good. How you doing, Jeannie? I'm doing great, Josh. Thanks. Great. So before we start, Ray, did you want to... Say anything, announce anything, add anything to your intro before we start talking about serotonin um, and endotoxin? Um, um, not really. I, I've just been finishing another newsletter that uh, includes stuff on serotonin. Uh, Great. This one's on osteoporosis, and uh, serotonin turns out to be a major factor in causing that and other aging, degenerative changes. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that today without giving all the information away. Now, are you still um, taking sign-ups for your newsletter? Oh, sure, yeah. Okay. So people can go to your website at raypeat.com and sign up for that newsletter. Um, yeah. Guys, it's super inexpensive, and it's a wealth of information. So I highly recommend signing up for it as well as grabbing his books if you can get your hands on them. So today I've gotten a lot of requests to talk about serotonin. Um, a lot of people don't know what endotoxin is. You talk about it a lot and you correlate it with serotonin in the gut and all these things, so I thought it would be great to group it in there. Um, but a lot of people don't understand serotonin, what it is. You know, is it a hormone? Is it a nurture? Like, what is it? Where does it come from? Is it internal, external? So I thought it would be great to do a show so you can kind of educate us on all these different factors, as well as supplementation. I think that's the most common question people have in regards to serotonin. Um, so I guess our first question is, um, you know, we have a lot of questions, and I have a lot of questions from listeners as well. You know, you have specific focuses on your research. Why so much focus on serotonin? Um, it, you can't understand uh, the other things that I'm um, working on unless you know where serotonin fits in. Um, for example, estrogen and progesterone. Uh, estrogen 
does a lot of its work by way of serotonin and uh, uh, to understand unsaturated fatty acids versus saturated uh, you have to understand uh, estrogen and serotonin and to understand thyroid you have to understand all of those and so it's it's a part of it's one of the um, emergency defense systems so that um, anything involving stress or compensating for stress uh, you can't begin to understand it without seeing where serotonin fits in. Uh, Hans Selye was one of the early researchers on the biological effects of, of serotonin. That was where I, uh, one of the first places I started running across it. Um, Aldous Huxley was another person that uh, got me interested in its variety of effects. So when we talk about serotonin, you know, most of the Western research, allopathic research, and, you know, most of what people, when they refer to serotonin, they talk about it as a, a brain chemical. Um, where do you find, sorry, most of the serotonin in the body? You know, where is it produced, um, and what is its main functions? Um, it's um, 95% of it, roughly, is produced in the intestine and the biggest concentration in the digestive system is in or around the appendix. And part of how I got interested in the whole pattern of of thyroid, estrogen, serotonin, and so on, was that when I was about nine years old, I started becoming nearsighted, and I occasionally had migraine headaches. And uh, I noticed that uh, things that I ate uh, would tend to bring on the headaches. And uh, there were a couple of girls in my school class who were also uh, nearsighted, and uh, I learned that one of them had migraine headaches, and so I started uh, looking at, at nearsighted people, and over the next few years I saw that uh, nearsightedness was much more common among uh, girls, especially starting around puberty, and uh, several of the nearsighted girls that I knew had migraines, and so I started thinking about what I had in common with uh, girls in puberty, and it was the um, the thyroid question, uh, estrogen and and uh, serotonin happen to uh, be anti-thyroid factors. And so if you're <clears throat> on the border <clears throat> borderline for thyroid function, uh, then you're very susceptible to uh, excesses and imbalances in estrogen and serotonin. Uh, the research was just barely starting. I, I got interested in the symptoms before the substance was identified. Uh, the um, ergot... Uh, a fungal disease of grains uh, was used for probably thousands of years to induce abortions. And uh, in the 19th century, uh, it was uh, attempts were made to use it to 
uh, accelerate labor, uh, but it was fairly dangerous and and would sometimes kill both the mother. Causes spasms, not only in the uterus but in the blood vessels, and uh, when people were uh, poisoned by this uh, ergot fungus, uh, they would develop gangrene and insanity, uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, just about every unpleasant symptom you could think of. Um, in the early 1900s, uh, people were uh, starting to study the chemistry of the ergot fungus, and histamine was the first thing they identified that caused uh, muscular spasms uh, and uh, would accelerate uh, uh, either miscarriage or abortion or normal delivery. Uh, and for about 20 years, uh, histamine was uh, of considerable interest and led to the uh, development of antihistamines. Uh, but in the 1920s and 30s, a continuing study of ergot uh, turned up uh, another, well, several, uh, a dozen different categories of, of uh, amines that uh, several of them would cause muscle spasms the same way histamine does. And uh, studying ergot was uh, what uh, Hoffman at Sandoz was working on when he accidentally uh, discovered the uh, nervous properties of uh, LSD. And uh, that led to a whole uh, further development of uh, chemicals for treating uh, problems with the uterus and circulatory problems and hormonal problems. But at first, um, the connection uh, with bodily functions wasn't understood. An Italian in the 30s had identified an amine in the intestine that caused <clears throat> intestinal contractions. And about 10 years later, some English studying huge amounts of beef blood found another amine, they thought, that caused blood vessel contraction. And and then the Italian showed that that was the same thing he had found uh, much more abundantly in the intestine, uh, thousands of times more concentrated. And uh, the English group uh, wanted to uh, learn how to assay it because it was they were thinking about it as uh, the cause of <clears throat> hypertension, uh, strokes, blood clotting, and and uh, so on. And so they gave it to someone to uh, try to identify a, a sensitive assay to, to measure uh, the amount in a, a person rather than having to extract it from tons of, of cow blood. And uh, the, the person that they gave it to to uh, try to develop an assay happened to have uh, experienced Sandoz's uh, LSD and uh, knew about its mental effects. And he was um, working on the assay, um, finding that uh, the serotonin extracted from the blood 
uh, would cause uterine contractions, blood vessel contractions, uh, all smooth muscles. And uh, he, since he had, he knew the chemistry uh, was um, it was an amine uh, parallel to some of the things in ergot. He wondered if the effect of LSD was by having the same antagonistic effects that he saw the LSD had on the serotonin. If serotonin would block the contraction of the uterus. Uh, LSD would block the serotonin-induced contraction of the uterus or of the blood vessel or of the intestine. Uh, serotonin would block the kidney function so that no urine was produced. LSD would restore uh, kidney function. Uh, so since he saw uh, straight across antagonism between LSD and serotonin, he proposed that the brain contains a small amount of serotonin and that LSD is having its effects by antagonizing uh, this small amount of serotonin in the brain. So we should all take a little um, dose of LSD every day to be anti-inflammatory and downregulate <laughs> yeah, um, there, uh, there's a, a new interest in LSD as a, a protective uh, chemical. Uh, they're finding that it uh, prevents nerve damage uh, caused by some of the serotonergic uh, excitotoxic chemicals. And uh, they're even proposing it as an antipsychotic treatment given in the right places. Interesting. Huh. Well, maybe by the time I get to a nursing home, they'll have that figured out. Um, um, the, the, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, the the um, disease called carcinoid uh, was just being understood at the same time in the 1950s. And uh, uh, this turned out to be uh, the result of a tumor in the intestine uh, especially in the appendix, producing huge amounts of serotonin. And uh, normally the the lungs uh, destroy the serotonin as it's picked up in the bloodstream. And on um, route to the lungs, uh, that means that the, the blood rich in serotonin passes through the right side of the heart before it's detoxified. And... Uh, these people were found to have a disease of the right side of the heart, the valves in the right side of the heart, and they would develop a pulmonary artery hypertension. And uh, uh, several of the uh, problems uh, associated with the carcinoid disease uh, included uh, psychosis and uh, uh, a belligerent aggressive attitude and diarrhea, nausea, and, and lots of other symptoms, uh, clotting, fibrosis, uh, overdevelopment of, of collagen systems. And uh, that was uh, well established as uh, the, the, the effect of overproduction of serotonin. So everyone at that time was thinking about the great possibilities of antagonists to serotonin. And 
1960, people were already proposing um, LSD to cure or prevent migraine headaches and uh, a variety of other things associated with excess serotonin. But then uh, strange things happened uh, all all through uh, medical research. Uh, the the government came out uh, banning research on LSD, and uh, someone uh, developed the the idea that uh, since LSD was an antagonist of serotonin, and the reason for banning LSD was that supposedly it made people uh, insane. Uh, therefore, uh, the great publicity was that if LSD, by antagonizing serotonin, makes you insane, then serotonin makes, must make you sane. Uh, that that really just spread like a plague through the national culture, and uh, that seems to be about the extent of the reasoning behind all of the stuff that you now find everywhere in the internet, uh, television, uh, newspapers, and so on, that serotonin is the happy drug. Right. Right. Now, why is, a, why am, why is most of it found mostly in the appendix? Isn't there a lot of it in the small intestine as well? Um, yeah, there's a gradient, though, increasing as you go down the small intestine. Okay. And normally the upper part, uh, starting at your stomach, uh, almost everyone has a, a sterile upper small intestine. And yeah. as you go down, the likelihood of, of having bacteria increases. And as a person's thyroid function decreases, their intestinal uh, secretions are reduced, peristalsis is reduced, bacteria tend to creep farther and farther up. A really healthy person has a almost sterile, whole, uh, small intestine. And uh, the, the sicker you are, the lower your thyroid function, uh, the more bacteria live in your small intestine. And that means that uh, the foods that are slower to digest are going to feed bacteria and encourage them to live uh, more abundantly higher up in your intestine. But ordinarily, uh, the gradient of bacteria is very concentrated towards the um, appendix, lower end of the small intestine. And it happens that the the gradient of bacterial infection increases parallel to the gradient of serotonin. And it's probably uh, that uh, the um, toxins from the bacteria uh, interacting with, with the physiology of the person um, are stimulating the production of serotonin because the function of serotonin is to cause contraction of the intestinal muscles, get right. rid of what is in there, uh, cause diarrhea, and get rid of the irritant. And so if you keep feeding the bacteria and coaxing them to live farther up your intestine, you can uh, produce serotonin more abundantly and 
farther up your intestine. So it's when uh, your metabolism thing, is... Go for it. Uh, uh, the things that uh, encourage bacterial growth are the ones that are slowest to to be broken down by your own enzymes. And since we don't have enzymes for fibers such as pectin or for um, uh, oh, uh, the lignans and, and various complex fibers, uh, the bacteria live on those. And uh, the, the um, things that we can digest very quickly, uh, sugars and proteins and uh, uh, fats are pretty quickly absorbed. Uh, these get absorbed uh, high up in the small intestine, and the bacteria don't get a chance at it because we're absorbing it faster than they can grow. So for the listeners, can you just identify some of those foods that you're talking about, the, the pectins and lignans that are not digestible or harder to digest? Oh, um, uh, lots of vegetables. Um, the less cooked a vegetable is, the better food it is for bacteria. Um, and uh, uh, even the firm fruits, uh, the ones that have a lot of fibrous material, uh, such as pectin, crisp apples, crisp pears, are um, very good bacterial food uh, very poor human food. Pineapple too. Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, cellulose itself, the the more pure the cellulose is, uh, the less bacteria are able to break it down. So right. uh, some cellulose is is safe, and then there are the, the uh, cellulose fibers that are combined with antiseptic chemicals like the root vegetables. Uh, carrots, uh, are um, they have defenses that kill uh, the mold and uh, uh, things that would rot the, the carrot plant. And, and so raw carrots have their germicidal defense that help to uh, kill off the bacterial population where it shouldn't be. So... You talked about how, where it's produced and what it does. It helps the peristalsis, the protective mechanism. But could something as simple as just having a blood sugar handling issue, maybe having the wrong ratios of foods, of course, eating the wrong types of foods we just talked about, you know, actually through that stress reaction, um, stimulate serotonin, or, or does it go the other way around? Um, the um, when you're having an acute uh, blood sugar decrease, uh, you put out a lot of adrenaline and sympathetic nerve activity that cuts the circulation for the fight-or-flight reaction. You stop your digestive processes and don't deliver very much blood to the intestine, so it, your intestine is anemic during these emotional uh, stress periods from adrenaline. And uh, that can give the uh, bacteria a head start because you stop digesting and uh, the food sits there letting the bacteria have a chance at it. And uh, then the any kind of irritation uh, will trigger 
serotonin release, just a fairly mild irritation. And then from there, I know based off a lot of your work, you're saying that serotonin itself will stimulate cortisol and just keep perpetuating that issue, you know, um, as it synthesizes with estrogen and as you keep breaking down muscle tissue where you store L-tryptophan, so the, the process can continually be exacerbated. Um, yeah, and the um, even though the, the gradient normally is um, for the, the most serotonin to be down where the most bacteria live, uh, when you're under severe stress, uh, experimentally they they just uh, strap a rat down so it can't move for a few hours, and uh, that causes uh, serotonin production in the stomach that causes bleeding very quickly. Now, what are the hormones that serotonin kind of synthesized with? Obviously, it's not just by itself released. You talked about histamine. What is its correlation with estrogen? Um, estrogen uh, activates the enzyme that um, turns tryptophan to um, serotonin. The rate-limiting tryptophan hydroxylase is activated by estrogen and inhibited by progesterone. And uh, that's the route into the serotonin. Uh, and the route out of serotonin is, um, uh, for example, the uh, monoamino oxidase uh, type A uh, happens to be inhibited by estrogen so it doesn't break down serotonin and it's activated by progesterone so it breaks down serotonin. So the in uh, route is um, increased by estrogen and the out route is decreased by estrogen and progesterone has the opposite effect, protecting you against serotonin. And uh, they've known, uh, in in our lab, uh, we saw that estrogen treatment would cause the animals to, uh, first it would enlarge their adrenal cortex, activate it, cause intense uh, stress uh, adaptive reactions, and then the uh, adrenal cortex would start bleeding and then dying and then it would uh, kill their adrenal cortex. Uh, And the mechanism uh, there has been worked out that uh, the stress increases serotonin, serotonin increases the uh, 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 the, uh, release factor that increases uh, the pituitary hormone which drives the adrenal cortex. Uh, So uh, the stress acting either through estrogen or serotonin ends up uh, overworking your adrenal cortex. Well, this is quite dangerous because, you know, I mean, a lot of people we work with, a lot of women, too, that are coming in, they're on SSRIs, they're on synthetic estrogens, not eating the right foods or right ratios or they're starving themselves, so they're having these huge metabolic shifts in regards to regulating their blood sugar. So it's almost like they're what they're taking and what they're doing is pushing them towards um, exactly where they don't want to go, where they think what they're taking yeah. is actually helping. 
that's that's where the polyunsaturated fatty acids come in too. Uh, they are specifically effective at uh, releasing tryptophan to enter the the brain uh, or or other uh, cells to produce more serotonin. And the serotonin activates the enzymes that convert uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids into the prostaglandins as um, sort of executors of, of the inflammatory process, amplifiers of it. And uh, estrogen uh, activates specifically, interacts with the polyunsaturated so that uh, the estrogen becomes more uh, excitotoxic uh, under the influence of unsaturated fats. And the unsaturated fats, again, are, are directed down the pathways towards inflammation under the influence of estrogen. So the unsaturated fats increase brain uptake of L-tryptophan, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, is that why a lot of Western research shows that serotonin is is a brain chemical? Because if you read a lot of the literature, at least what I've read, most people don't say that serotonin is found in the gut. Or if they do, it's a small amount. They say the opposite. Um, well, you, yeah, that's... That orientation comes from the drug industry exclusively. Um, If they had been paying attention for the last hundred years, they would have known otherwise. Uh, But it's just that the the pharmaceutical industry uh, subsidizes and uh, directs research where they want it to go. And they don't want people noticing uh, the um, diseases that would be cured or prevented uh, if people would uh, have a different understanding of what uh, tryptophan, serotonin, estrogen, and polyunsaturated fats are doing. All of those happen to have their industrial uh, investments that that really very powerfully uh, direct uh, medical school research, uh, newspaper publicity, uh, everything is is herded away from understanding that uh, just about every acute or degenerative disease uh, would be alleviated by um, controlling serotonin. So I'm sure there's a lot of women listening or people, men, you know, that are taking SSRIs. They think they're helping themselves. Um, and the Western thought is you need it because you have a low serotonin, in a sense, low levels of serotonin. And what you're saying is they're actually excess and making it worse. What are, what are doctors basing their... Um, uh, it, it's really sort of fun to read uh, uh, the medical publications. Um, it's similar in the case of, of estrogen, uh, but um, in serotonin, for example, instead of measuring the uh, amount of, of uh, serotonin in the serum and or the amount of breakdown product, hydroxyindolacetic acid in the urine, and uh, uh, seeing correlations between that and symptoms. Uh, for example, men with uh, more than 100 
uh, nanograms per milliliter of serotonin in their blood serum are tending to be uh, imperfectly fertile or infertile or impotent, uh, the higher it goes. And the normal range is said to be various numbers, but roughly 50 to 250 nanograms per milliliter. But men are sterile at the upper end of that. And uh, when you look at at the amount produced by a cell being injured by radiation, it's below 25 nanograms per milliliter until it has been injured by radiation. So uh, I would infer from those in vitro studies that uh, everyone who has more than 25 uh, nanograms per milliliter in their serum is um, experiencing some sort of inflammatory degenerative process. Uh, The uh, articles, uh, instead of looking at those correlations, uh, will say uh, they're they're measuring... um, for example, the total serotonin in the whole blood, and they say there's no difference between this group or that group. But uh, it's absolutely decisive whether the serotonin is being bound in the platelets in the blood where it's being carried to the lungs to be destroyed or whether it has leaked out of the platelets into the serum where it can act on uh, the wall of the blood vessel and the heart and the lung uh, causing hypertension and uh, fibrosis of the lungs and heart valves and so on. And uh, they will uh, look at the amount of um, the breakdown product, 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid in the urine, and if it goes up, they'll say... uh, depends on whether they see it corresponding to a a good effect or bad effect, but uh, they'll either say that it it means that there's less serotonin in the brain when they see more in the urine, uh, because if it's uh, broken down, it can't be acting. Uh, In other words, they can uh, choose what they want to interpret as happening in the brain by looking at something very remote, uh, the breakdown product in the urine. And so if if your lungs are working effectively to destroy it, you'll see the breakdown product. If the lungs aren't working effectively, uh, you won't see the breakdown product. Uh, So uh, it'll look like uh, you might not be experiencing serotonin uh, stimulation when... That's exactly why you're experiencing it, because you aren't forming the breakdown product. Hmm. Now, can you elaborate for the listeners on the correlation between melatonin and serotonin? Because I know you talk a lot about melatonin and melatonin su- supplementation. Um, um, yeah, uh, um, uh, an Italian researcher has been seeing uh, melatonin uh, very closely associated with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, high melatonin goes with high rheumatoid symptoms, and the the inflammation of the rheumatoid arthritis is worse at night when the serotonin, when the uh, melatonin is high, and so on. But 
uh, its melatonin is actually being produced in the inflamed arthritic joint or in the inflamed uh, cancerous breast, for example. Uh, and uh, I interpret that not to mean that melatonin is causing the inflammation or the cancer, but that, like in the brain, uh, serotonin is turned to melatonin. I think it's a detoxifying process. Um, when when stressed, if you can destroy the melatonin by this alternate route rather than by uh, the monoamino oxidase route, if you can turn it to melatonin, then you've um, disposed of a good part of your inflammation problem. Did I lose you? Hello? Oh, I thought I lost you for a second. My phone cut out and I grabbed Jimmy's phone. Just want to make sure you're still there. Yeah, just saying that that I interpret the association of melatonin with these inflammatory right. problems as being a detoxifying process. Now, which one, which one's a precursor to which? Is melatonin a precursor to serotonin? Uh, yeah, when you get rid of serotonin, you turn it into melatonin. So a lot of these people that are supplementing with melatonin, they think they're helping themselves, especially at night, they're actually putting themselves into an immune-suppressive state as well as um, uh, stimulating cortisol because serotonin stimulates cortisol. So they're actually going to – the thing, very thing they're doing to help with sleep is actually uh, going to make it worse. Uh, it, uh, the uh, difference of, of toxicity between serotonin and melatonin is, is so great, uh, it's just sort of an indirect – uh, problem. If, if you take uh, 10 milligrams of melatonin, then that's going to be a problem, but uh, a milligram or so is probably harmless. But uh, the 5-hydroxytryptophan uh, turns massively into serotonin. That's where people are going to get the problem. From. So the 5-HTP that people are taking for maybe depression or to help with sleep you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, that's that's really much more dangerous than melatonin. Okay. Um, because of its immune suppression and, and the stimulation of cortisol. And, um, and, to, yeah, and turns to serotonin. Right. Uh, and so I, I've recently talked to people who um, had eye problems, cataracts or um, glaucoma, who were taking, had been prescribed to take uh, fish oil and 5-HTP, and uh, uh, you can create cataracts almost instantly with a, a dose of serotonin, and uh, the serotonin is is high in in sick eyes uh, with cataracts or glaucoma, and the, the fish oils break down, increasing the uh, the formation of serotonin in the eye, just as it happens in the blood and and other tissues. Now, while we're talking about 5-HTP, I know there's people <clears throat> that are listening now, will listen later, that have or are taking it for an emotional issue and feel like it helped, food, depression, things like that. Or, you know, what's the mechanism behind that? Is it helping at the expense of really damaging the metabolism? Um, if it happens to drive up their, their um, cortisol, 
Um, cortisol makes everyone feel uh, good temporarily mm -hmm. um, by stopping inflammation. Uh, so that, that's one of the, uh, the possible good feelings. Um, some of the uh, effects of the SSRIs are really surprising. Um, some of them do uh, pretty uh, directly increase your exposure to, to serotonin. Uh, you can find it in the body fluids after taking the drug. But uh, they have treated aggressive dogs with one of, of the um, SSRIs and find that they work to um, decrease their aggressive uh, viciousness. And at the time that they become uh, friendly dogs, they measure the uh, amount of serotonin in their blood and find that it has decreased greatly. Sure. And uh, that was one of the uh, symptoms of the carcinoid people in their last stages. Uh, they were often unmanageably aggressive. Uh, and uh, uh, that whole thing about uh, the um, anti-aggression, anti-anxiety, uh, all of those uh, happy associations are just, they, they look at, at something they want to look at rather than what's really present and acting in the system. Hmm. Can you talk about Serotonin's correlation with the thyroid and CO2 levels, and and what what it do, what does it do to the lowering CO2 levels to to lower thyroid production? Uh, what does it do to the what levels? CO2. Oh oh, um, the um, serotonin activates prolactin, for example, along with cortisol. Um, when you're low in thyroid. Uh, your serotonin goes up, and um, the TSH is uh, partly increased by the rising serotonin, and low thyroid people uh, very often have increased prolactin as well as thyroid-stimulating hormone. Uh, those both are increased by the rising serotonin from the uh, oh, Low thyroid people have high estrogen and low progesterone, and those are involved in causing the serotonin to rise. Rising serotonin increases the prolactin and TSH. And if your thyroid can't respond vigorously to correct the whole situation, uh, bring up your pro progesterone, lower the estrogen, turn off the production of serotonin and get your TSH and prolactin down, uh, then you get stuck in this high TSH, high prolactin, uh, high serotonin situation. And all of those things, the pituitary hormones included, create inflammation, promote clotting, uh, the formation of lactic acid, suppression of the mitochondrial respiration, which produces carbon dioxide. Uh, so your whole energy system is um, pushed down when you get uh, in, in that pattern. Um, the the um, 
absence of um, carbon dioxide is um, a place where you can start if if you uh, survived a polyunsaturated uh, fat diet and so on um, and were in good health, didn't have high serotonin or inflammatory problems, didn't have leaky blood vessels and water retention and so on. If you just wanted to experiment and you panted hyperventilating for a minute, you would find that the loss of CO2 in your blood raised the pH in the blood platelets, which are uh, moving the serotonin to your lungs to be destroyed. Instead of carrying it to your lungs, the loss of carbon dioxide causes the platelets to spill their serotonin, causing uh, blood capillaries and arterioles to dilate and become leaky. And uh, within a minute, you can create a a hyperserotonemia uh, edematous condition. Uh, And once you get that, then it tends to uh, become self-perpetuating if it has has become too intense. So just going back to kind of what you said at the beginning, it's it's the high it's the damaged metabolism and maybe the bacterial overgrowth and the overburden on the liver and the estrogen kind of dominant thing that doesn't allow the liver to detox the serotonin, which increases serotonin levels, pushes people into the state. Yeah, and and those changes make you hyperventilate, make you tend to lose even more carbon dioxide, and uh, uh, everything tends to uh, reproduce itself, making it, the condition worse unless you intervene with thyroid or progesterone or carbon dioxide. Um, the carbon dioxide, um, besides holding the serotonin in place in the the, um, platelets um, helps to um, detoxify and anti-inflame all the other parts of the system. Um, It um, prevents um, the um, overproduction of adrenaline, for example. Uh, It tends to calm the whole whole system as a you can um, sedate a person if you um, give them a, a fairly high amount of carbon dioxide uh, so, so it, it's acting on everything from from your nervous system down to your bones in a stabilizing effect um, and at the other extreme there's the lactic acid and serotonin that are destabilizing everything at all levels so could you say a lot of people who are being diagnosed with asthma, they're actually just hyperventilating? Um, yeah. Um, estrogen, uh, women taking estrogen uh, will tend to hyperventilate, uh, have a slightly uh, alkalotic condition, and uh, that increases the release of serotonin and histamine, and those cause uh, contraction of the muscles in your uh breathing system uh, will bring on uh, the whole, everything from uh, a slight uh, flemminess to uh, 
tightness of the tubes all the way up to uh, terminal fibrosis of your respiratory system. Great, great stuff. Can you elaborate a little bit? You talked a lot about an, an environment and all these different things in, in the internal system. And you talk about this a lot in some of your articles and in actually some of your books. Can you talk about light? And what does light have to do, or even darkness, have to do with serotonin? Um, the um, uh, popularity of the um, morning light treatment, um, everything that makes someone feel good, turns out they'll say, oh, that's because it's increasing your estrogen and your serotonin and your prostaglandins. And everything they have to sell, they'll say, if you feel good after doing something, it's because right. you you need more of our product. And it's the same with the light boxes. Uh, getting enough light makes people feel good, so they say, oh, that's because it's uh, increasing your serotonin. But in fact, uh, the peak serotonin in the blood is at midnight in the winter, and uh, the, the enzymes that produce it and detoxify it are uh, under the influence of light, too. Uh, so there are direct effects of light on the enzyme systems that regulate it. And when you look at the end product uh, being uh, depressed and inflamed, uh, the worst time is at around midnight, and uh, the worst season is in the winter. Uh, people uh, get sick, tend to have strokes, uh, depression, all kinds of uh, diseases are exacerbated under the influence of darkness and high serotonin. So, so on it, it, some, some, oh, sorry, sorry about that. Are you so still on it? Uh, uh, Is that better? I'm having some technical difficulty today for some reason with the host here. Is that better? Um, yeah, you were skipping for a second there. Yeah, it's acting really odd today. I apologize to everyone. I'm not sure, but I just have to keep rolling with it. Um, so we could say basically that in a sense light stimulate is more stimulatory to progesterone and darkness is more stimulated stimulatory towards estrogen, serotonin, melatonin, things like that. Yeah, that's been, been known for a long time that um, uh, it's the increased day length in the spring that um, makes animals uh, fertile from rising progesterone. Uh, for example, they've mated uh, an animal that has delayed implantation. They, they would mate the, the animals in the winter and then watch when the female that had been mated at, uh, over a span of six weeks or so, they would watch when she actually became pregnant. It was about March 21st when the days became as long as, as the nights. Suddenly the hormones, progesterone, would rise to the point where she would um, implant and become pregnant. So if you kind of correlate this with, you know, I'm from Boston originally, and a lot of people in the winter get seasonal affective disorder, quote-unquote, because the days are shorter, so you can kind of correlate that with people becoming almost serotonin dominant. And if people maybe got outside a little more, 
eliminated PUFAs from their diet and maybe use light therapy later on in the day, you could downregulate um, the inflammatory effects of serotonin. Um, yeah, there are direct effects of it that you can demonstrate uh, in a cell that, uh, for, for example, um, sunlight will, the ultraviolet part will excite electrons and create free radicals. Um, it, it takes usually several hours uh, for those to fade out, but if you expose it to red light, in other words, uh, let the penetrating rays uh, get to the tissue, the free radicals are quenched almost instantly. Um, with um, uh, animals, they can uh, give them a lethal dose of uh, gamma rays, uh, and uh, if they, within the first hour, expose them to red light, uh, that quenches the excited electrons and uh, stops the the death process. Uh, when you get uh, sunburned, your skin is, is being killed by the ultraviolet, but the red light is all that penetrates uh, deeply. Uh, the red light from bright sunlight will uh, go all the way through your trunk. It, we're semi-transparent to the red light because the only thing that absorbs it significantly is the respiratory uh, enzyme, uh, the copper. Uh, in a, it's a, a blue enzyme that absorbs red light, which is our respiratory enzyme that uh, depends on thyroid function. That happens to be what is damaged by serotonin, estrogen, and free radicals. Now, I got a question from a, um, one of the listeners. <clears throat> we can talk a little bit more serotonin, then we'll go to endotoxin, because you could probably sit here and talk about serotonin for the next couple hours and never get to endotoxin, but I want to because we don't have all day. Um, one of the listeners wanted to has a question in regards to serotonin and exercise and says that a lot of the popular articles say that aerobic exercise is good because it raises serotonin, and, of course, we know you're not a fan of aerobic exercise. Um so is serotonin affected by exercise, and what is the best kind to make sure that excess oh. serotonin is not produced? Um, yeah, there have been some experiments showing that uh, resistance exercise uh, of a very moderate sort, uh, muscle building, the kind that is best for uh, building muscle, is is best for lowering inflammation and serotonin. So more of an anaerobic, when you say you're yeah, talking more anaerobic. Staying below the lactate threshold. Okay, yeah. So just doing an anaerobic workout, I mean, do you recommend anything nutritionally during a workout, pre or post, other than that, to downregulate serotonin or, or specific uh, focusing on specific foods? Um, yeah, the, the sugars... Uh, keeping your cell energy up, producing carbon dioxide is the best way to uh, minimize the serotonin and lactate. Orange juice? Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's good stuff on serotonin. Let's move on to endotoxin because, you know, there's a lot of questions. I get questions from listeners. I have questions, but um, the past hour definitely has flown by. 
and want to talk about endotoxin a little because you never really hear it out there. The first time I was exposed to it was through you. Um, so what is endotoxin? What it, what, can you explain it to the listeners? Um, yeah, its technical name is lipopolysaccharide. It's uh, uh, some fatty acids of, of a specific kind uh, attached to a, a short starch-like molecule, the polysaccharide. And it's made by uh, a whole a variety of bacteria, the gram-negative type, produce it. And um, it's part of their um, their structure so that as they live, they're, they're building more structure and, and uh, leaking some of this uh, fat starch molecule. And it's so representative of this whole uh, category of bacteria that animals have evolved apparently to recognize uh, the presence of lipopolysaccharide as the presence of bacteria and uh, it activates the innate immune system uh, to uh, do things that defend against the bacteria to uh, get ready to eat bacteria and uh, the it's a toxic effect that seems to be a, a physical um, effect on the cell uh, rather than a, a chemical effect or a, even an immunological effect. It, it seems to act have a soaping-type action on cells that uh, destabilizes them, uh, lets them know that they've been irritated and that amount of physical irritation is enough to activate uh, things like the production of, of serotonin, a release of histamine, the activation of uh, proteolytic enzyme systems, and uh, uh, creating a shower of, of things that, that are part of our uh, very basic defense against bacteria. So, so it's, you, um, it, it. it's it's just it's just sort of a basic uh, threat that happens to be produced by uh, most of our familiar bacteria, intestinal bacteria of several uh, different genuses, uh, produce it, and uh, we've adapted to living with it so that uh, it's sort of a stimulus when it's in the right amount. It uh, tones up the system and gets things running, and uh, we normally can destroy all of it uh, that gets into the bloodstream uh, by the time it gets to the liver. Um, but if your liver is overworked or under-energized, uh, then the uh, endotoxin gets through in your your bloodstream where it uh, starts having this irritating, destabilizing effect all through your system. And uh, its direct effect on the cell destabilizes it enough that it uh, lowers mitochondrial energy production, forces the cell to uh, shift over to lactic acid production, 
so it's it's acting directly in in harmful ways that that start the leaky process uh, letting stuff leak out of your bloodstream into the surrounding tissues and uh, so you can demonstrate that it uh, makes problems like multiple sclerosis uh, worse by by letting more stuff leak through the uh, barrier into the brain but it in in the starting right at the intestine uh, if, if the intestine is in very great condition it can stop the endotoxin before it gets to your liver and your liver is is the, the next uh, layer of defense um, but at each of these every place the endotoxin reaches it activates the serotonin and other uh, innate uh, inflammatory reactions and those um, include nitric oxide uh, which uh, goes with uh, uh, like a shower of mutual excitation uh, endotoxin uh, serotonin nitric oxide and the prostaglandins uh, these are uh, things that normally are under control and and don't do much harm but uh, once they reach a certain level of interaction and and uh, promotion of each other uh, then they all add up to um, suppression of our oxidative metabolic system so something as simple as the stress reaction from anything, you know, excess cortisol production um, could cause an increased production of endotoxin. Something that simple. Increased absorption of it, yeah. Um, yeah. With, uh, from there is an onslaught of yeah, the bad. Uh, a lot of starchy food, uh, undercooked uh, uh, cereals and... and uh, Poorly, poorly cooked vegetable material uh, will feed the bacteria, increase their production of it. And then that excess production of endotoxin increases serotonin release from the intestine. Um, and then just basically, you know, that cascade of everything we just talked about for the past hour, any of those possibilities could happen. So they kind of go hand in hand in a sense. Well, I mean, everything kind of goes hand in hand, but there's a high correlation between endotoxin and serotonin. Yeah, very close. Um, I, I think that's probably the the closest way to account for the gradient uh, increasing serotonin as you move from the stomach to the uh, appendix. Uh, I think that's because of the increasing production of endotoxin. Right. So, beside, um, what other foods in the body can actually cause an increase in endotoxin? You know, beside maybe eating the wrong foods you've talked about, you know, eating maybe undercooked cereals and things like that. Of course, unsaturated foods with unsaturated fatty um, acids. Um, yeah, the uh, things that are high in phosphate uh, have... Um, some of the uh, 
overlapping effects with the inflammatory things. Uh, calcium, if you have a high ratio of calcium to phosphate, uh, calcium happens to uh, suppress the fermentation of fiber and starch in the intestine. Um, so um, uh, high calcium intake will actually reduce the production of the endotoxin as well as uh, reducing the consequences of your reaction to the endotoxin. Um, the um, saturated fats, um, having some fat in your food um, uh, does various things that um, can be helpful. Um, there's a, a germicidal effect of the fatty acids <clears throat> that uh, helps to keep the intestine sterile and uh, you should be able to absorb your fat uh, by roughly half to two-thirds of the way down your small intestine where it's still uh, sterile. But um, if, if you uh, eat uh, fat with a fiber, uh, the fat helps to suppress the bacteria and it can uh, help the fiber persist and um, go all the way through your intestine. Um, so it can turn what would be a harmful uh, fiber-supporting endotoxin, it can turn it into a, a useful uh, sort of a bowel-stimulating bulk former. Right. So even, you know, like, of course, these cereals and cooked foods, unsaturated fats, even a lot of these things that people are eating, like the carrageenan, gums, um, beans, all those things, can actually um, cause the overproduction of endotoxin as well. And going back to the foods that actually um, protect against it, that's where, you know, the from eggshells and, and dairy come into play as being a protective mechanism. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't um, know that these things could protect you even against carrageenan. <laughs> well, I mean against endotoxin. <laughs> I don't mean against carrageenan, but I mean against endotoxin, you know, at least. Yeah. If you'll yeah. start to eliminate against, those things from your diet. Yeah, against real foods, but I I think if they're really trying to poison us by putting carrageenan in our whipped cream and and uh, lunch meats, uh, yeah. they'll succeed. They are succeeding. Right? What? So they are succeeding. Oh, oh, yeah. So you talked about calcium, how it's protected. Where, for the listeners, where, what types of foods do people get for calcium? Because I think we've talked about it before, you know, people taking calcium supplements. But what's the best sources of calcium for people? Um, powdered eggshells really are by far the the next best to milk and cheese. Um, in the case of milk, you have both the fat and the uh, lactose helping to absorb the calcium. Uh, in the case of the powdered eggshell, at least it's the, in the form of calcium carbonate, which is the form that uh, it's going to be most beneficial. Calcium carbonate is how calcium is integrated into the bone. And... Uh, I think the reason they 
see some uh, counterproductive effects from calcium supplementation is that they're using such strange things as um, uh, pills for, for um, nutritional supplements, um, calcium phosphate, uh, orotate, uh, gluconate, aspartate, and so on. You don't want to use any of those. Uh, the calcium carbonate from eggshell is is very pure and the right chemical. Now, while we're talking about food and we can kind of group serotonin in this, you've talked about carrots and bamboo shoots before as well um, to help the body kind of reabsorb and detoxify against estrogen, serotonin, and endotoxin. Correct? Yes. Now, for the listeners, can you just explain why you recommend a raw carrot versus a cooked carrot? Um, the cooking does something to um, make the um, carrot fiber uh, acceptable to bacteria, and the bacteria will thrive on cooked carrot, uh, where uh, almost no microorganism can uh, uh, multiply on a raw carrot. And uh, from a cooked carrot, you absorb almost all of the carotene, and the carotene has an antithyroid action. And uh, the um, you you do get more uh, potassium, uh, calcium, magnesium uh, out of out of the cooked carrot. But uh, it, it, the point of the carrot isn't nutrition; it's to um, help cleanse your intestine. Right, it's more medicinal in a sense. Now, what about keto proteins? In one of your in one of your articles, you talk about keto protein, proteins. And I think it's in one of your serotonin and endotoxin articles. Um, can you talk about what keto proteins are and why you um, recommend them in regards to maybe being um, anti-serotonin? Um, no, I'm I'm not sure what you're talking about. Keto, do you say? Keto, yeah. I think it's your article on, or one of your newsletters on serotonin, and you talk about um, keto proteins um, or ketones, and then before keto acids, you know, from potato. Oh, raw oh, potato. oh, the, uh, yeah, the, um, the, the these are uh, the equivalent uh, carbon framework of the uh, essential amino acids, but they lack the ammonia needed to make the complete essential amino acid. And potato happens to be very rich in these. Probably a lot of fruits are, um, but they haven't been analyzed. But uh, we did, we juiced potato and ran it on paper uh, chromatograph and uh, saw that it was very rich in all of the equivalents of the essential amino acids. But when you test it chemically, it has a very low amount of protein in the potato. But when you eat it, uh, these keto acids are changed once they get into your bloodstream. Just by absorbing ammonia, they change into the essential amino acids and uh, can uh, support protein synthesis. So if a person has 
uh, very low kidney function and uh, can't uh, get rid of a lot of urea instead of uh, needing dialysis, uh, if they eat these keto acids instead of protein, uh, they can recycle their ammonia over and over instead of making it into urea that needs to be excreted. And uh, potatoes are a very rich source of of this protein equivalent, um, such that um, if you uh, mash uh, two pounds of potatoes, uh, you can think of it as being equivalent to a quart of milk for protein value. And it also has a good balance of all the other nutrients. So that if you juice it and get rid of the starch, then you have an extremely concentrated high-value nutrient. Right. That's good stuff. I've always wanted that, and I was reading it. It just kind of confused me, so I'm glad you clarified on that. Guys, I forgot to mention, I hope everyone knows, we're always taking callers. Don't forget to call in at 347-426-3546 if you want to call in and ask uh, Dr. Rapin any questions. I do have some questions coming in from from um, some listeners on serotonin and endotoxin that I could ask you. And One of the listeners asked if um, you know any correlation uh, or cause of... Um, raised moles, moles, things like that um, in regards to, you know, unsaturated fat, serotonin? Um, Yeah, I was just reading some articles on uh, the um, handling of of tryptophan and serotonin by pigmented uh, molds and uh, other uh, pigmented skin. Uh, It's just starting to be investigated but um, I've had uh, a lot of experience with uh, just the effect of thyroid and related hormones on molds. Uh, I, a couple of doctors in about 1980 told me I should have a biopsy on a mold that had become big and, and rough and totally black. And uh, I was experimenting with DHEA and progesterone at the time and knew that I didn't want to get involved with cancer specialists. And uh, after I'd been experimenting with the the steroids, uh, I saw what looked like a maraschino cherry where the mole had been. And uh, over the next three or four days, uh, the inflammation went out of it and what was left was a, a small brown mole that I had had all my life in that place that had uh, wanted to turn into a, a melanoma. And since then, every time I have become hypothyroid from not taking uh, a thyroid supplement, I notice that I get molds growing. I've probably had oh, 20 or 25 that would easily be diagnosed as, as um, melanomas. Uh, For example, uh, a a white mole with a blue and black spot that changed position every three or four hours, extremely turbulent metabolic activity, uh, just churning around, uh, changing shape and and colors. 
and and those disappear uh, in just a matter of hours or or days adjusting the thyroid and and uh, progesterone, pregnenolone, and DHEA. Right. Now, while you're on the thyroid, I just got another email from another listener, and just and this might be a large question, but if you could lab, elaborate um, a little bit more on, or talk a little bit about uh, anemia in correlation with the thyroid. Um, Broda Barnes brought that to my attention. Uh, he uh, believed that uh, hypothyroidism was usually the cause of anemia, and I probably never recommended an iron supplement. Uh, he cited an experiment in which uh, rats whose um, pale bones never make red blood cells normally, uh, their tail was inserted through a, a little nick in their abdominal wall and sewed inside their body. And uh, later, after saying at core body temperature for a couple of weeks, they took the bones out and found that they were producing red cells just like their their uh, rib bones or, or hip bones, whatever, would be producing. And uh, it's simply a matter of temperature. If your extremities are cold, the, the bones are too cold to make blood cells. And uh, low thyroid people, uh, even if their core temperature stays up, their extremities uh, tend to get very cold. There you go. Well, thanks for answering that. I got another question from a listener. I guess people have decided to email in today instead of call. Um, but like I said, guys, don't be afraid to call 347-426-3546. Another question uh, from one of the listeners. You talked about serotonin and bacteria uh, in the small intestine. Uh, his question is in regard to candida or yeast overgrowth. And if you can elaborate a little bit more on that and maybe if it has a relation to serotonin. Oh, um, the um, ser- the candida normally is, is harmless in the intestine, but uh, like the other organisms, it, it shouldn't be living uh, very abundantly above your colon. Uh, low thyroid people sometimes have um, candida growing even in their stomachs, and when they drink uh, anything sugary, uh, they they brew beer or wine in their stomach and and can make so much that they get drunk every time they eat, eat sugar. Um, but ordinarily, uh, they shouldn't be living there, and that, that's mainly uh, because your uh, thyroid function is low. But the, if you want to uh, make a yeast angry, uh, don't feed it sugar. Uh, because a yeast needs sugar to um, uh, grow normally. And when it's deficient in sugar, it will sense sugar in your intestine, in the blood, uh, as where any glucose that it can sense is available. So it will uh, drill 
holes in your intestine and send filaments down into your intestine to get uh, some glucose, which it needs. Um, but if, if you keep feeding uh, the yeast sugar, the worst you'll get is uh, a little drunk. <laughs> that's kind of opposite of what most people recommend. You know, there's a lot of people out there uh, that say don't, you know, sugar feed, well, it does, sugar feeds on fungus, and if you have an ogre, it'll starve it, and it will go away, which in all reality, it does feed on sugar, and you actually need it to downregulate it. And the less you take in, the more overgrowth you're going to have. But, but the raw carrot is a very good antiseptic for candida and other fungus. Just one a day keeps the doctor away. And um, we've seen people who had uh, the typical uh, high estrogen, high cortisol, premenstrual syndrome uh, in just three or four days of the carrot salad have another blood test and everything is normal uh, because the carrot is uh, preventing the reabsorption of estrogen, which is blocking your uh, liver function and your thyroid function. Uh, the carrot by eliminating the endotoxin uh, lets your thyroid and uh, other glands function properly to bring up your progesterone and lower your estrogen and cortisol. Now, for the listeners, when you say carrot salad, do you just mean a shaved carrot? Do you just mean raw? I mean, there's anything else in there? Salt, pepper, oh, oil? Or... Uh, yeah, raw is good, but um, if you want it to be really antiseptic, uh, you shred it lengthwise, preferably, because the length of the fiber is important. You don't want to put it in a blender, but uh, you want quite a bit of the fiber to be intact. And uh, a few drops to a spoonful of, of vinegar without additives and an oil, uh, olive oil, uh, just a teaspoon or so, uh, improves the taste and... Uh, Either coconut or olive oil will have a germicidal action that normally you would absorb the oil high up in your intestine and it wouldn't um, get as far as the bacteria in the lower intestine. So the carrot absorbs some of the germicidal acetic acid and uh, olive oil or coconut oil carries them along with it and its own intrinsic uh, germicide is increased by these other antifungal uh, chemicals. Same thing with the bamboo shoots. Food with the bamboo shoots, you recommend uh, cutting them up and cooking them? Um, yeah, I've never tried a raw bamboo shoot, but uh, they're a very interesting vegetable that uh, I like them with a, a cheese or egg sauce. Sounds good to me. Um, guys, if you want to call in and ask questions, 347-426-3546. Is there anything else, Ray, you want to talk about in regards to serotonin and endotoxin? Anything, of course, we probably forgot or didn't chat about based on a lot of your research over the years? Oh, um, keeping in mind that um, the so-called scientific community, uh, the, the corporate product, 
research community is is very determined to keep the public thinking a certain way about estrogen and serotonin, and so uh, they they never mention certain topics, and they always um, try to read the data so it looks like it's beneficial even when it isn't. And uh, if you think of anything bad, uh, uh, then uh, you you might consider what the role of estrogen and serotonin is in relation to that. Uh, for example, ergot was used to produce abortions, um, and uh, that led to its being uh, a drug to uh, facilitate uh, childbirth. But the, um, the ergot derivatives um, and serotonin are are involved in uh, impaired fertility, uh, um, lack of sperm formation in men, uh, birth defects if, if a woman is exposed to high serotonin while pregnant, uh, uh, difficult delivery uh, because of high serotonin causing uh, reduced circulation, um, the, the whole preeclampsia syndrome right. is uh, very centered on high high serotonin. Uh, when fat women have um, a problem with pregnancy, it, it's typically because the estrogen and serotonin are reducing circulation to the uterus. Um, just practically any problem that people have, if you investigate it, it's going to turn out to involve uh, those those three types of system, the the prostaglandins, fatty acids, uh, the serotonin, tryptophan system, and the, the estrogen stress system. It's kind of scary because everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people are taking estrogens and synthroid, um, synthetic estrogens and SSRIs and, you know, infertility is up and, you know, C-section drop and preeclampsia and, I mean, just all these things. Uh, weight gain, it's almost like the very thing that people are trying to build up and, and work on is actually breaking them down um, and just perpetuating illness. Um, yeah, uh, the um, the famous uh, brain degenerative diseases, uh, Huntington's disease, um, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's disease, and these all uh, involve uh, the, the serotonin effects. Right. Uh, Forty years ago, uh, someone identified uh, increased serotonin as a, a demyelinating uh, factor, uh, as as well as a, a blood vessel leakiness factor uh, released by uh, platelets that that concentrate around the plaques in multiple sclerosis, for example. And all of those are increased by high estrogen, high prolactin, and uh, tend to be corrected by progesterone and thyroid. But all of the stuff that has been known, uh, very clearly demonstrated 30, 40, 50 years ago, the, um, the drug science culture manages to get everyone to forget. 
No, just going back, one more key point that kind of popped in my head right now. You know, you've talked a lot about progesterone being kind of antagonistic to estrogen and serotonin um, and um, sort of facilitary to the metabolism of the thyroid. Uh, what about vitamin E and aspirin? You know, you talked about um, decreased circulation in the uterus, and I know you talked about aspirin actually increasing yeah. circulation in the uterus. Um, yeah, and it's um, gradually being used more to um, treat uh, preeclampsia and, and pregnancy problems. And it's um, very, very powerful against serotonin in many of the ways that, that thyroid works, uh, aspirin and thyroid, and some of the sugars like fructose um, work in the same ways against serotonin. Um, the uh, in a, an animal model of the uh, very serious lung disease, pulmonary artery hypertension, uh, they can cure it just with aspirin. And um, cancers of various types are, are promoted by serotonin and uh, inhibited or cured by aspirin. Yeah, everyone listening, that doesn't mean go out and start buying aspirin and popping it. There's a rhyme and reason to everything. You know, make sure you know what you're doing. But um, if used correctly, it can be very beneficial. Um, yeah, the aspirin is filling in for a lack of uh, the other natural things, um, calcium, thyroid, progesterone, pregnenolone, carbon dioxide. No, I just got another question from a, a listener, and I think I know what you're going to say. This. I think you've actually already answered this question kind of indirectly, but he asked about serotonin's effect on libido and um, what could one do, uh, a male, in regards to raising libido by lowering serotonin. It's just by increasing calcium, eliminating unsaturated fats, increasing saturated fats, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, all of those anti-inflammatory things, um, and uh, the, the um, keeping your carbon dioxide up high uh, by not uh, doing aerobic exercise, I think, is very important. Um, sometimes the thyroid uh, is the crucial missing thing. Um, sometimes vitamin B6 is all it takes to uh, get things going very suddenly. Um, niacin amide to uh, inhibit the free fatty acids that in most people are are mostly polyunsaturated. Uh, niacin amide to, uh, especially if you accompany it with orange juice, uh, to um, reduce the breakdown of, of fat from your deposits. Uh, that can stop the stress enough to get your thyroid and and uh, androgens going again. Now, a quick, quick question for you on niacinamide. Have you ever seen people that take niacinamide, have you ever seen a dose, maybe too much of a dose, cause GI upset or diarrhea? Uh, no, I've, I've never known of that with the niacinamide form. Uh, okay. The uh, old, it's still popular, the nicotinic acid, that makes yeah. people turn red. Uh, what it's doing is increasing the release of serotonin and uh, activating prostaglandin production. 
uh, stuff you don't want to happen. Right. And uh, even the uh, the kind they call no blush, no flush, uh, niacin. It, it's um, inositol hexonicotinate, I think is its name. It right. still releases nicotinic acid, which uh, releases serotonin, where the niacinamide doesn't do that. And the um, even the uh, the slow release or the nicotinic acid are for sure going to increase the risk of diarrhea by increasing your serotonin and prostaglandins. Right. Good stuff. Um, once again, anything else you want to elaborate on? I don't have any more questions, and I don't have any more questions from callers. Um, and I definitely, we've got a little bit more time. I don't know if you wanted to add any more of your two cents, which would be great. But um, we have covered a lot. Oh, um, Anything? Uh, the um, idea of fibrosis. Uh, if you can find uh, an old book with uh, Hans Selye's work in it, you will find some interesting stuff on on serotonin and uh, the calcifying diseases and the fibrotic diseases. Um, he he was very quick to to assimilate serotonin in the his study of of inflammation and stress. Is that, is that what it's correlates with prolactin um, in, in in calcium? Um, it, the um. It, it does many things to uh, cause calcification. Um, it, it increases the uh, parathyroid hormone even, yeah. uh, which um, takes calcium out of your bones and puts it in your blood vessels and kidneys where you don't want it. And Hanselli demonstrated uh, that it would calcify the skin, turn a, a rat's skin into a like a turtle shell. Yeah, I know a lot of people. I've tried to look for his books, his encyclopedias, and all that. They're out there, but they're going to drop some bank on them to get them. They're pretty expensive. Oh yeah. So, but it's interesting stuff. So obviously, it would be increasing calcium intake to downregulate that internal excretion to downregulate parathyroid hormone. Once again. Yeah, and uh, sodium is sometimes the missing factor. Right. Um, all of the all of the trace minerals. I advocate some kind of seafood once a week to get your uh, selenium and copper, for example. The copper is needed for the thyroid to work in the respiratory enzyme. Selenium is needed for the thyroid to work in the deiodinase systems. Now, you talked about sodium. Do you recommend people using uh, salt, specific types of salt? Um, yeah, uh, clean salt without additives. Um, I use Morton's canning and pickling salt. Seems okay. Because there's no additives. Now, what are your thoughts on the Celtic or, like, the Himalayan and all that? Um. The red color in the 
Himalayan stuff is um, iron mostly, and uh, where you find iron, you're likely to find worse heavy metals. And then what about like a gray Celtic sea salt? Is that gray tint iron? Um, yeah, that's um, basically French mud that makes it gray. <laughs> but is it is that mud is that mud high in iron content as well? Um, uh, yeah, usually there's um, quite a bit of mineral content. Um, anything from the English Channel is now likely to have. Uranium. They're they're dumping their nuclear waste into the channel. Awesome. Yummy Celtic sea salt. <laughs> well, we got about fifteen twenty more minutes. I like I said, I, I don't have any questions. I went through about maybe twenty or thirty of my questions. We've had a lot of uh, listeners email in and ask questions, and I think we covered a lot. Um, before we hang up, guys, if you do have any questions, feel free to call at 347-426-3546 or pop me an email quickly before we um, end the show and before we see if Ray has anything else to add. Um, anything else, Ray, you want to elaborate on? Anything else you're working on or anything else about serotonin and endotoxin you want to kind of get in there before we have to go? Oh, um, uh, the um, current... Newsletter is going out uh, in about a week on osteoporosis and how serotonin fits into that. Right. And the the one I'm starting next is going to be on sugars, especially fructose, because of the craziness that is um, circulating in the culture now, telling people to fear fruit even. Yeah, it is pretty crazy because if you look out the window... What people It's just so simple. What people are doing is not working. It's just because it doesn't fit into their paradigm, they just poo-poo it, but everyone's getting worse, and it's just, it is craziness. So just a quick question to osteoporosis and serotonin. Is it its correlation with the parathyroid hormone and prolactin, like you talked about, and calcification, um, and its correlation with estrogen and cortisol that, uh, lead to osteoporosis? Um, yeah. Um, they were noticing that people on the SSRIs for a few years were getting uh, exaggerated degrees of osteoporosis, and uh, that uh, led the, the people who had been looking for uh, products, uh, searching for genes that they could uh, replicate and and make a product out of uh, these people were um, looking in all of the wrong places. Uh, they would find something that they thought would um, work like estrogen to prevent osteoporosis, according to their way of looking at the world sideways. <laughs> and uh, then it would turn out that their product uh, caused uh, fibrosis of the lungs promoted cancer and even was associated with osteoporosis increasing. Uh, and uh, one uh, of the groups that had been working on, on the genetics uh, trying to uh, find products, uh, they said uh, basically when they looked up and looked around, 
and noticed that the intestine was the source of the serotonin that was causing the osteoporosis. They said they rediscovered whole animal physiology. Uh, and when is this business going on? A week? I didn't hear that. I said, when is this newsletter going out in a week, you said? Oh, um, the osteoporosis is going out in a week, yeah. Okay, good. So, everyone, you get a week to sign up. Go to his website, raypeat.com, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. Sign up for his great newsletters, and you can get this newsletter and many more uh, that are going to be coming out. Um, we do have a caller, if you don't mind taking a call. Sure. Caller from 253, you're on there. Justin calling from Tacoma. Uh, my question was uh, uh, for Ray to possibly elaborate upon what he talked about earlier in regard to the healing effects of the red light. Uh, I live in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm sure as Ray is familiar with up in Oregon, we have long, uh, seemingly very stressful winters with not much light, a lot of cloud cover. So what I was looking to uh, see if Ray could answer is possibly some practical applications for the use of that light. Um, I've heard the 250-watt infrared lights, high-voltage or high-watt incandescent mercury vapor lights, um, just a practical well, well, guide of what he would do. And uh, Thanks, and I'll take my question off the air. Uh, with the mercury vapor ultraviolet lights, you have to be really careful uh, that you don't get a sunburn, uh, that that will cause you to make um, vitamin D. Um, I personally prefer to uh, use a little uh, vitamin D, absorbing it through my skin, uh, rather than uh, try to fiddle with a, a safe amount of ultraviolet light exposure. But uh, it, it does work for um, keeping your parathyroid hormone down under control and your your calcium where it should be. Eating excess calcium is very helpful for uh, regulating the parathyroid hormone that tends to rise in the winter. So I think we need more calcium during the winter. And uh, everyone should, uh, in a, a cold, dark, northern climate, uh, you can get these uh, they're called 130-volt uh, reflector bulbs, uh, meaning that they're designed to run on a higher voltage than the standard 120. So on the normal voltage, uh, they produce an orange-colored light that's very poor in the blue part of the spectrum and very rich in the red and orange part that's biologically good. And... Uh, since they uh, produce a lot of heat with less of the bright white light, uh, they help to heat a room in the winter. Uh, I have two of them aimed at the area where I work, and two of them are generally enough to keep a room warm, even in cold weather. Um, but it wouldn't hurt to have uh, three of them uh, 750 watts aimed at you uh, for your general well-being. <laughs> so there are 130 watt reflective bulbs. 130 volt 
and okay. they're usually about two, 250 watts. Okay. They call them infrared, which just means they're designed for a different voltage. Right. Good information. I'm sure a lot of people up in those areas as well as the East Coast and snow areas could benefit from that in the wintertime. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left, kind of running out of time here. Um, I think that was a great show. Um, we really appreciate you coming on, Ray. And once again, everyone really benefits from the material and the work that you're putting out there. <laughs> I know we get lots of emails from people, and I'm sure you're getting way more. Um, and people just appreciate all the all the work that you're doing and, and the information that you're putting out. So I know I'm speaking for a lot of people when we say thank you. Okay. Did you want to add any more to the serotonin endotoxin topic? Uh, well, the um, the, the antidepressant thing. Did did I mention the the dog that was uh, found to have low serotonin? The um, the things that lower your serotonin uh, are likely to make you less aggressive but happier. Uh, the one of the interpretations of um, what serotonin is doing that I think makes sense. It's um, the the person who founded the line of thinking was named Cloninger, um, and it's that uh, the uh, behavioral system for harm avoidance and a general behavioral inhibition is uh, what serotonin is doing. And uh, so when you uh, reduce your overproduction of serotonin, you stop thinking about harm avoidance and uh, have a, a more positive, uh, constructive, uh, exploratory attitude so you're saying the lower the better. Yeah, the lower the better. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I love it. It's just it's great because uh, you know a lot of stuff that you say to me makes so much sense, but it's just it's opposite of what everyone's saying. Um. Uh, yeah. Th that's um, pretty much a an intentional thing. The um. Uh, the business culture took over science uh, after the 1940s. Um, uh, there used to be a lot of doctors around who knew how to use thyroid and cure arthritis and insanity and <laughs> dementia and everything with thyroid. Uh, but they were educated before the Second World War. Then the corporations took over the medical schools and everyone educated since the 1950s doesn't know any of that stuff about thyroid. And it's uh, the, the the serotonin issue came in uh, really with the the introduction of, of fraudulent science governed by the the pharmaceutical industry with their estrogen theory. Uh, a whole theory of aging and stress was invented by the the estrogen industry, and that was <clears throat> that was already established for about fifteen years uh, when serotonin came on the scene, and so the 
they worked serotonin into the system uh, so that it didn't impair uh, the, the advertising campaigns for estrogen. And so the whole system reinforces itself. Uh, the, the way science is done and the way things are interpreted, it is all designed really just to support the advertising system of the drug industry. So buy any book before 1950 and not anything after 1950? <laughs> yeah, you have to be very careful with uh, the stuff after 1950s. To, Can you, to I, I, you know, I know you have your books and articles, but a lot of people do uh, ask as well. Can you recommend any other books or people just off the top of your head in regards to serotonin or endotoxin that people can kind of look up? Uh, no, not on those subjects. Okay. Um, Just check out your articles. Oh, um, yeah. Um, if you uh, you just have to um, be critical and and look for how they're arguing. Uh, they'll they'll basically say anything uh, that when you say um, this this uh, product improves the situation or ameliorates it uh, rather than increases or decreases. If, if they say simply it changes it, increases it, or decreases it, they might be honest. But when they say that they're improving the enzyme function of the rat, uh, you can suspect that they're, they have some product in mind. And so be wary. Uh, yeah, about ninety percent of of the things you run across um, in just in the the general journals, it's biased very heavily. But by the time it's filtered through the television and a newspaper uh, system, then it's like a, about ninety-eight to one, ninety-eight to two. Uh, for the industry and against science. It's tough. You know, there's so much out there, and, you know, I guess that's why you kind of stick with your articles and just go from there. Keep you on the right track. I'll keep everyone on the right track. Well, I think we're about to wrap it up. i got a couple minutes here to kind of say goodbye to everyone. And, uh... Once again, great show. Really appreciate you coming on. I know everyone appreciates you coming on. And uh, have a great, uh, have a good weekend and a good day, Ray. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. So another great show, guys. Great Pete, serotonin and endotoxin. It's a lot to take in. We probably could have talked for hours and hours and hours on this. Um, Those two topics alone, especially serotonin. Um, I have a lot of emails, you know, that I, I couldn't get in, unfortunately. only have a couple minutes left. But definitely listen to the show over again. Um, if you have questions, email us. You can email Ray, like I said. Just make sure you compensate him for his time. And just keep in mind, his philosophy is based on science and how the body works. It's not a diet. It's not do this to lose weight. It's based on the human body. It's based on how it works and what the body needs, what it can break down, what's going to facilitate 
the metabolism, reduce inflammation, and not cause disease in a sense. Uh, there's so much going on out there about what Ray thinks and what people should eat and this and that, and just realize that he doesn't truly have a plan, and everything out there there is people's interpretation of his work, right? That's why there's, you know, I've talked to many people, and everyone's using his philosophy very differently, you know. So just, you know, study it, practice it, and realize it takes time, it takes effort and consistence and fine-tuning to meet your body's metabolic needs every single meal, day, week, and so forth. And then when you think you get it, you got to fine-tune again to keep layering that healing process. So hopefully everyone enjoyed the show, enjoyed my little pep talk or whatever it was. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to our Facebook and YouTube for our next show with Ray. Next month I'll be posting it hopefully in the next week or two once I chat with Ray, and I'm out of here.